Well, good morning, everyone. And today I'm joined by Michael J. Dunn, the founder of uh, Automotive uh, Resources Asia, um, former president of General Motors Indonesia, managing director of JD Power China, a keynote speaker, author, and currently CEO of Zozo Go, and host of the Winning in Asia podcast. That's uh, quite a rap sheet, Michael. Uh, what have I missed? Uh, there is one other thing we should talk about, and that is that um, in my teenage years, I was the driver of the getaway car for my father, Jim Dunn, who's the notorious legendary spy photographer wow. based in Detroit. So what does that mean, spy photographer? He, he would be the guy who would travel to Death Valley or Kappa's Casing in Canada or the Proving Grounds at GM and Ford around the Detroit area and capture future cars when they first came out on the roads for testing. You know, we've seen these cars camouflage. Well, for 20, 30 years, that's what he did on the side. He would take, he would wake up in the morning. What, I was one of seven kids. He'd say, okay, Mike, you're on today. You're driving. I'm going to shoot my Nikon out of the passenger side. And we're going to go get some Corvettes out at, at the Milford Proving Ground. So please do add that to my <laughs> Wow, I think you need, to, uh, you need to put that on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> it's, li it's likely uh, myself and uh, many other generations of young people have seen his photos in various publications and things. Right. If you see cover of Auto Week or other ma magazines like that, Automotive News, and it says spied, you know, Corvette, new, yeah. captured. Um, Nine times out of ten, it was it was Jim Dunn. Wow, and yes. you weren't uh, tempted to follow into his uh, footsteps. I was. Uh, I got fired though after one day where he said I didn't live up to his expectations as a driver. I'd never make it as a spy photographer. So we were out at the <laughs> Milford Proving Grounds on a country road, two lane country road that ran parallel to what is called or known as the North South Straightaway at the GM Proving Grounds. This is where they take the cars full out up to 120 miles on max speed. And um, if you can imagine, we're on a country road that runs parallel to that north-south straightaway on the outside of the fence. And I had to drive the car in such a manner that I would reach a top of a hill, allowing him to shoot down into the proving grounds and capture the car coming at us at exactly the right time. If you're too soon, you blow it. If you're too late, you're blown. No pressure on me as a 16-year-old, right? <laughs> I mean, were you, oh. driving a, were you driving a car that was capable of keeping up with uh, the, the prototype vehicles? Right. We were coming the other direction, right? So we're coming one okay. direction and the cars are coming the other. And the car was uh, had plenty of horsepower to get the job done. In fact, too much horsepower in this instance because I gunned it. We come flying up over the hill. We peak too early. And we're up over the hill and down, going down the other side. And he says, and I knew it. I could see the car was not in range to take the photo. He's there with his night long lens Nikon ready to shoot. And what happens when we get back, we go over the hill about 50 yards. He says, stop, stop the, stop the car. So I stop it there on a two lane road. Back it up now, back it up. And I thought, oh, my God, no, I'm only 16 years old. I don't want to die today. You know, blind backup on a two-lane country road. Who knows what's going to come over the hill? Well, I followed his orders. We backed the car up. He got his shot. He was so happy. And he said, all right, let's move. But um, he got the job done, despite the fact that I was not so competent as a driver that day. 
And from then on, he goes, you're done. You'll never make it as a spy photographer. You need to go elsewhere. Oh, look, <laughs> I mean, talk about trial else. by fire. I think uh, you, you <laughs> coped very well given the circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Now, you, you clearly have an extensive background in business as well as stunt driving and um, specifically uh, automotive business in Asia. Um, I'd love it, if possible, if you could give our listeners a, a brief rundown on your background. Um, you're born and raised in Detroit, that's correct, and studied Chinese history, I believe. That's right. Grew up around cars and studied Chinese history. So one of the things I spent a lot of time with my father and he'd always say, Mike, nothing's going to get done at the office looking up at the ceiling or out the window. you got to go out and make things happen. So that had a profound impact on me. At the same time, <clears throat> I was a fan. <clears throat> at the same time, I was a fan of Kipling, uh, read his stories when I was a kid. And there was one quote from Kipling that really struck me. This is, uh, he said something to the effect, somewhere is east to the Suez, where the best is like the worst, where there ain't no Ten Commandments and a man could raise a thirst. So that image of Asia being some sort of open frontier just really appealed to me. And, and when it was time to go to school at college, I said, okay, go west. Let's go west beyond California. Let's go across the Pacific and explore something completely unknown to our family, and that is China in Chinese. So upon graduation, I had a Ch degree in Chinese and knowledge of the car business. And I put the two together. This is 1990. And I thought, hey, China's just opening up. There's a chance that it will build its own car market. And when it does, the automakers from Detroit and their suppliers will want to get in there. Let me go out front, do some recon and see what's out there. And, and with that in mind, I, I went to Asia straight out of school, uh, landed in, in, in China and shortly set up my first company, Automotive Resources Asia, to advise automakers and suppliers on how to get into this mysterious, promising land called the Middle Kingdom. Now, I think that shows incredible foresight because, um, you know, even with our proximity in Australia to China, it wasn't until I'd say the, the mid to late 90s that we really had an inkling that, uh, you know, I guess value-added industry could be huge over there and could be a sort of global player. You're, thank you for your kind words. Actually, it was Irish luck. You know, Irish I sort luck. of backed into it. <laughs> when I first arrived and I remember going to the press club, they had a press club for foreign journalists there and that's where you'd meet other foreigners, uh, a good networking environment. And the manager there, an older British guy asked me, he said, what are you here for? And I said, I, I'm starting in a consultancy to advise global automakers on how to enter and compete in China's car market, 1990. He looked up at me over his glasses, I remember, and he said, okay, uh, that is the most cockamamie story I've ever heard because there's no car market in China. What really are you doing here, Mr. Dunn? Uh, and it was true. There were only bikes, <clears throat> motorcycles, very few cars. But you stick around and sure enough, you know, the first Volkswagen is there and then GM came in with the Buick. And before you know it, <clears throat> we're off and running. And that sort of uh, a lesson for me, too, was and for everybody, I think, in life is you might have the direction right. The timing might not be right. But if you stick around, things work out. That's, that's quite sage advice, actually, <laughs> because uh, Volkswagen had um, a joint venture, didn't they, in the late 80s? I believe they were the first in into China. 
They did. Volkswagen was the first alongside uh, what was known as the Beijing Jeep joint venture, uh, a tie up between the city of Beijing and Chrysler. And then in the south, there's a third joint venture between Guangzhou and Peugeot. And of the three, really, Volkswagen was the one to really gain traction. The other two sort of faltered. Mm -hmm. uh, early days, all there were no dealerships in those days. Imagine the cars were built at the factory and then driven by factory employees to state enterprises and other government agencies that bought the cars or taxi fleets. Rarely did you have an individual with enough money to buy a car. Uh, <laughs> so those were rough days. And Volkswagen's Carl uh, Hahn had a vision. He said, Japan and Korea did this. There's no reason why China won't also build a massive auto industry. And boy, was he right. Yeah, yeah. And I guess skipping forward to sort of present day, I mean, China is moving to uh, remove restrictions uh, on foreign ownership limits, I believe, at the moment, sort of over the next um, three to five years. So do you think Chinese automakers can compete uh, domestically with the likes of Western manufacturers that are moving in without the restrictions that they've seen in the last few decades? The, the Chinese are, are hell-bent on, on having cars to call their own on being a manufacturing powerhouse for the world. Up until now, it's been a source of immense frustration for the political leadership in Beijing. Why? Because if you go to China today, in all the major cities, what you see most of all are Buicks and Volkswagens and Hyundais and Toyotas and Hondas and Mercedes and BMWs and Teslas. Chinese brands remain the minority. Imagine it's the biggest car market in the world. They build almost a third of all vehicles in the world. And yet Chinese brands are hardly on the radar screen. You've got, you know, your cherries, your Geely's, your great walls. So up until now, it's been a point of significant frustration for China as a nation. How come we can't have our own Toyota, our own GM? And uh, they're hopeful at this point that changes once in a hundred years, changes in the auto industry, where we're talking about electric autonomous vehicle, where the software becomes so important, suddenly China sees an opening. We no longer need to play catch up with the West. We have an opportunity to actually lead in next generation technologies. So there's a, there's a fresh optimism and confidence, especially as we see a couple, three new startups, very impressive companies called Neo. Uh, is one, Xpeng, X-P-E-N-G, named after the founder, He Xiaopeng, Li Auto, WM Motors, startups that got their feet in the last five to six years building electric autonomous smart vehicles are really uh, showing the potential, finally, for China to have really world-class cars. Electric motors are the great sort of leveler aren't they in this field i mean the the engineering of the internal combustion engine sort of formed in europe and the us you know was was always way ahead of chinese passenger vehicles wasn't it but with electric cars as you say software is now key um and the chinese know how to do luxury they know how to do all the other bits and pieces so they're now creating products that are on par with with uh, germany and, and the us that that's right you you hit on a couple things one is Question mark around Chinese cars forever has been quality. So, even, even sorry, even domestically in, in China? Domestically too. Yeah. Chinese customers are punishing. They're really tough. 
Can you share with uh, our listeners the little rhyme about cherry that you uh, yes. shared on your podcast? I thought that was really quite funny. <laughs> yes, you know, it's especially in contrast with Japan and Korea. Japanese and Korean customers highly nationalistic, and by default they buy their national brands. Not so in China, at least not yet. So in the early days, you had companies like Geely and Great Wall and Cherry trying to put together cars that would be affordable and appealing to Chinese customers, but the Chinese customers care deeply about the money they spend on these cars. It's a big part of their income. So Cherry gets out of the blocks and has serious quality issues. And uh, so much so that there became, there came on the internet known as uh, a, a, what would you call it? A ditty, <laughs> a sort of poem uh, that goes like this. It's in Chinese, it's, which translates as cherry cherry get in line for repair <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I i laughed out loud in public when uh, when i heard that on your show <laughs> it's very good oh my goodness it's very that, good. that says it all right <laughs> it does and i think you know in australia that is unfortunately the perception of of um, the Chinese auto market um, mm -hmm. uh, of Great Wall and Cherry in the 90s and early 2000s, where it was all about price and they were still learning how to build cars, you know? They were learning how to build cars. Uh, they were always super cost conscientious, looking for any way to reduce costs, not really believing or embracing that quality requires some upfront investment in design and engineering, and that would produce the result. They're thinking, hey, we can do this more cheaply and faster than those guys. Uh, but they learned, they learned. And just um, recently, I had an opportunity to speak to Peter Horbury, who's the head of design at um, Geely Automotive, previously at Volvo and prior to that at, at Ford, a really accomplished designer. And he said, I asked him, today, you've been in Geely now for more than five years, what is the gap in Chinese quality between the Chinese manufacturers and the global ones on the ground in China? And he said, none, it's gone. There's no real gap in manufacturing quality. Now he did hasten to add, and this is important. He said, there is still a perceived gap, which is all that really matters. The customer's perceptions haven't caught up with reality yet. And that's a hangover for these Chinese brands. And that's what they're battling right now. Yeah, particularly in the West, I think, uh, right? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You ask uh, a typical person on the street here in the United States, Chinese car, and they kind of their eyes go up to the left and they think quality. I don't rely. Is it reliable? Mm, I don't know. It's, it's kind of bizarre, isn't it? And, you know, I suppose potentially in some people, at least uh, there's a degree of racism involved because we accept um, Chinese quality in so many other aspects of our materialistic lives in our, in our mm. smartphones, our computers, our household appliances. Yet when it comes to cars, we think, oh, it's, it's, it's garbage. It is something's going on there in the brain for sure. And the Chinese have in a way began, begun to respond to that. For example, Neo positions itself as a global company with a global brand name, nothing, nothing Chinese about the word Neo, with offices in Munich and San Jose and, and in Shanghai. And they definitely don't position themselves. They, they, they want to shed themselves of any kind of stigma 
related to Chineseness. So they're manufactured in China, funded by Chinese, but they're a global brand. That's one one way they're they're aiming to get around this. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is, as you said, China has already established itself as a first class, world class manufacturer of quality. In fact, today in the U.S. market, the Buick and Visions here are built in China. The small SUV, yes, yeah. as as are the uh, some Volvos. They've now got a plant in South Carolina, mm. and Polestars, the Polestar, brand new、yeah. all all electric, is manufactured in China and sold here in the United States. So, there's certainly、um, the The reality is that the manufacturing quality is very good. It's just that there's a, a lag in、um, in perce- perceptions of that quality, along along with other things that would cause a consumer to think twice. For example, what about the parts? What about convenience, resale value, and all those other things that go into、uh, someone's someone's decision about their next car? Yeah, you've raised some interesting points there, and I, I suppose.、Um, The Chinese automakers are at that point that the Korean automakers were at in the early '90s, where you know they were struggling with perceived value in the in the West. And I suppose what、uh, Korea did, they hired、uh, all the designers and、uh, experts and engineers from、um, European automakers, and they started to give their cars the look and feel of what we expect from Mercedes, from Daimler, from BMW, that sort of thing. And I guess、uh, Chinese automakers are going in that direction as well in terms of what we expect. When it comes to to luxury, that's right. So if you can't beat them, hire them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's what the just as you say. That's exactly what Hyundai and Kia did, and we see that today. If you look at BYD's new、um, Han, their their flagship SUV, that was designed by Wolfgang, and I always forget his last name. <laughs> A German engineer who used to be with Audi and I think Mercedes Benz, for one,、uh, at Geely and at Polestar, you see the influence of、um, well, at Polestar, Thomas Ingenlath is the、yes. CEO. He's a designer,、hmm. and at Wolf, Geely, Wolfgang, sorry, Wolfgang Egger. Yes, that's Wolfgang Eggert. Who,、yep. when you go into a BYD showroom in downtown Shanghai, he's there. He's a rock star right next to the car. Hey, we've imported this. Genius German designer to help us get to world class, and guess what? Look how good looking our car is today.、Um, other examples: the former designer, I believe, at Rolls Royce is now at FAW, helping them build their flagship Red Flag vehicle.、Uh, and and if you dig a little bit underneath the surface, you'll find that there are actually dozens of Western designers on the ground in China,、uh, bringing their world class expertise to China and being paid for it too. Yes, being very well paid. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot in there that、uh, I want to talk about. You brought up some interesting points、um, because BYD、uh, just in the last couple of weeks has signed a, an agreement with an Australian、uh, distributor. I don't know if you know that.、Uh, yes. So it's yeah. It's sorry. Of course you do. <laughs> you know all. <laughs> well, I read about it with interest because I think doesn't doesn't China have some history with Great Wall having kind of a false start in Australia? Also some. That's right. With, yeah, yeah. They, they did have a false start in Australia, and、uh, what, I believe what's, that. What's what's the tenor right now? What's the if you ask your average Australian about Chinese cars, what's what's the feeling? Yeah, again, I think、um, I, w- I would have to say there are negative connotations.、Um, that said.、Um, MG is、uh, has just cracked the top ten in terms of passenger car sales in Australia by volume. 
um, this month. So with their small um, MG3 petrol uh, hatchback uh, and their uh, ZS SUV, uh, they've cracked the top 10. So they're, they're doing very well in Australia. And I, I and have to are say- Are those manufactured yeah. in China or in the UK? Uh, those China. are manufactured in China, I believe, both, mm -hmm. both of them. And they've just started selling the ZS EV here as well, but we're talking a couple of hundred units uh, to, yes. to kick off. Um, but uh, yeah, BYD is is coming to Australia and it's the first um, sort of um, distributorship, if you will, I think outside of, well, globally that, that they've signed. So it's, it's a big deal for Australia. And this company is planning a direct-to-consumer sales model. So they're actually promising, and they're, they're called Nextport. They're promising um, price parity with internal combustion engines when mm. the cars launch. So that should be a really interesting shift uh, in the Australian market. What is the percentage of electrics to total sales in Australia today? Well, here you go. We're talking 0.6%, I think, uh -huh. um, without Tesla, possibly over 1% with Tesla. And you're seeing the Teslas, are those built in China too? We've just started to receive the Made in China Model 3s with mm -hmm. the revised battery chemistry, um, mm -hmm. but predominantly everything else has been from, from Fremont, uh, obviously. From Fremont. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what's the holdup? You've got lots of sunshine in Australia. You've got, um, so solar power is one element. You've got plenty of, of grid power. What's the hesitation on electrics in Australia so far? Well, there's a lot of perceptions, as I'm sure there are in the US, about electric vehicles not being suited to big countries, you know. And mm. it's, it's interesting that people are looking for a car um, that covers a thousand miles, that carries the shopping, that carries <laughs> seven children, and is mm -hmm. also a performance vehicle, you know. Whereas I think according to our sort of Department of Statistics, most people drive here about 35 to 40 miles a day round trip. You know, that's what they need. <laughs> that's right. And if you ask them, well, I guess it isn't, it's apples to oranges a little bit. But if you ask me, yeah, we have one electric car and one um, internal combustion car in the driveway. Mm. If you ask me how far the internal combustion can go, I don't know, I don't know, mm. but I know exactly how far the electric car could go. So it's a little bit of a um, tougher sell, tougher sell. Uh, Someone mentioned to, to me the other day that uh, it was exactly the same at the dawn of, um, you know, the combustion engine in the mm -hmm. late 19th century, early 20th century, where there was one gas station. <laughs> yes. And people people would have ranging anxiety then, you know. So <laughs> this is this is emerging technology, I suppose. But, um, you know. That's right. One gas station. I remember stories of this so-called uh, cannonball run, New York to Los Angeles. Who could run it the fastest? My dad did it once. Uh, and he described in the very early days, in some instances, having to find a hardware store uh, because <laughs> just to buy some gasoline from the hardware store. Yeah, to your point. Yeah, early wow. days for charging infrastructure, that seems to be a major yeah, um, charging infrastructure is, but um, I think, you know, also there's obviously vested interests who are looking to keep mm. electric vehicles at bay um, yes. and are looking to bolster uh, oil and, and, and gas consumption. Um, you know, we don't even have very good emission standards in Australia. Um, we've still got some of the dirtiest diesel fuel in the world, um, unfortunately. So we've got a lot to do uh, over here. <laughs> a wide open country will do that, right? It Open will, road. yeah. There, there, there is a degree of complacency. I'll unfortunately, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> but 
But um, now you're also head of uh, Zozo Go, and um, Zozo Go has a lot of involvement with Asian car markets. So you basically help uh, companies pursue opportunities in Asia. Is that correct? Exactly. So if we look over the next 25 years, uh, we were in the midst at the front end of this massive once in a hundred years transformation where we're moving from gasoline powered to electric. We're moving from driving our cars to being driven autonomously. And we're moving from, you know, the car as a tool to get you from point A to point B. Increasingly, it'll be the ultimate urban device so that we're consuming a lot of entertainment, doing messaging, doing work from our car, connectivity. Yeah. And this, this, this massive shift in what it means to be an auto industry plays right into the hands of the China's and other Asian uh, countries strengths. So whereas they were playing catch up for years, new innovations are coming out of Asia. The markets are in Asia. The regular regulators are totally supportive, especially in China, of of this revolution. And so automakers, suppliers and tech companies here in the West really want to be part of that story. And uh, they tend to know very well their own technology. But when they step into Asia, they're confronted with a series of obstacles, the likes of which they've never seen before. You know, like Kipling said, take me east of the Suez, but he had no idea what it was, what it was going to be like on the other side. So in, in our years, in my years working at General Motors as an executive, J.D. Power, founding a couple of companies in different countries, Indonesia, Thailand and China, I came to understand that the key to success in Asia has less to do with which technology you bring or you offer and more to do with how to navigate Asia's um, unique, particular, uh, competitive arena. So what do I mean by that? Uh, let's just take an example. One of our customers is a world-class developer of software for connected car services. They're doing very well in North America. They would like to expand in Asia. How to get started? Well, the starting point is to look at the regulations. What, what's allowed? What licenses do you need to acquire? Mm. Do you have to partner or not? All these things that at home you don't even think twice about. Come on. Yes. Those yeah. are givens. And so our company works shoulder to shoulder with these tech firms, with automakers and suppliers to either invest, partner, or sell their products directly into Asian markets. Right, right. I guess the other key thing about uh, Asia is population as well. And I don't just mean volume. I mean, they have the technical expertise now. They have the engineering skills and the number of engineers to actually, uh, you know, drive this new energy vehicle industry forward, don't they? They, they really do. They really do. The, the catchphrase of the, of the year, of the decade now is Asia's moving from catch up to catch us. Uh, really, the innovations we see, for example, one product that's sizzling hot in China right now is this new EV uh, called the Hongguang Mini. It's co-developed by General Motors and its partner there, Wuling. Uh, in the first 200 days of production, they've sold 200,000 units. <laughs> 200,000, 1,000 cars a day for 200 days straight. Just phenomenal start. Um, what's the secret? It's all electric. It's very affordable. It starts at $5,000. 
it wouldn't be suitable for your date night in Sydney sure, for sure. sure. <laughs> well, but you know. for the, you know, maybe <laughs> who knows? <laughs> but for for a huge swath of the population around the world in places like Southeast Asia, South America, Africa, Middle East, a very you know it gets you from point A to point B. Uh, it probably top speed is about sixty five miles an hour. Who cares? But yeah. it's affordable. It's econ it's economical easy to maintain and it's selling like hotcakes. So this is a kind of innovation what well, we haven't seen before from China and mm. now they're right there. And the, the, uh, the executives at the company said they're now, they've now been contacted by more than 150 countries around the world asking how they could get their hands on this product. So watch that space wow. in terms of- and, and that's it, it's, it's only the Chinese, I think you can actually respond with the scale to put out that many vehicles, isn't it? only in china yeah so in terms of battery technology has has america uh, i suppose and the eu for that matter been caught uh, asleep you know catl is uh, dominant in the market uh, china is trying to tie up um, as many resources as possible and the supply chains what's what's the future of i suppose global uh, battery industry of of market share i like the way you put that have we been caught asleep pretty much yeah. Pretty, much, yeah, pretty much in a deep slumber, hibernating. <laughs> um, uh, the visual there is, is, yeah, just not awake. And it's time for us to wake up. If we look at the Earth from space, we'll be fascinated to see that battery production for all electric vehicles around the world is essentially concentrated in this tight geographic area called Northeast Asia. Japan, Korea, China build, develop, sell 95% of the batteries in the world. Mm. Can you imagine how dependent we are on such a little area? And um, in the last few years, China has really risen in terms of capacity. They're now the largest single producer in terms of capacity of those batteries. Um, they still have a little bit of ways to go before they catch the Japanese and Koreans in terms of quality, but they'll get there. And um, this has really been a wake up call, kind of a put a scare into the US and into Europe. So we're just beginning to see the emergence of new investments. For example, there's a Swedish outfit, very interesting called Northvolt, um, that will put battery production into Europe. And here in the United States, we have Tesla, California, we have Tesla, Texas, mm -hmm. and um, LG Chem recently announced that they're gonna invest something close to $5 billion to put in new plants to, to supply GM. Right, but uh, right. America needs to really pick up its game because uh, it, we're way behind on, on batteries, way behind. So, so battery security is going to be akin to fuel security uh, going forward, potentially. It, it will. The battery is the heart of those electric cars. And if you can't get the supply, you don't have product. There, there are very interesting companies in California that are working on future batteries. So it's not as if the U.S. is totally dead in the water, but certainly we would benefit from an administration that makes electric vehicle, electric vehicle infrastructure and batteries a priority for the nation. It's really a Sputnik moment. We need to match China's challenge or we'll be left um, and also ran. When I say we, I'm speaking as an American, I know you have a global audience, so, but I think it, yeah, I think it applies to everyone around the world. China's throwing down the gauntlet saying we will be 
global dominators in next generation electric vehicles from supply chain to production to capacity to exports who's going to beat us yeah <laughs> and that's the thing i mean you know tesla fans love to talk about the company's vertical integration um, which they obviously do very well but when china controls all the batteries you know every other automaker is going to be beholden to um, basically the chinese market in terms of the the setup cost for their electric vehicle aren't they that's right. That's right. You, you mentioned Tesla. They've done, they've done a phenomenally good job of getting set up in China, as you know. Um, they, they source their batteries from LG Chem and CATL. So they were able to convince the Chinese government that in, in order to sustain, maintain Tesla's world-class quality, they didn't feel as though CATL was quite there yet. So they do buy some, but most of their, most of their supply comes from LG Chem building inside China. So to your point, it's still batteries in China. It's still in China, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, obviously, hydrogen vehicles, are, you know, they're, they're topical at the moment, and a number of manufacturers still seem to be pursuing the uh, hydrogen passenger car route. What are your mm. views on hydrogen as a technology for, for automobiles? Hydrogen, I'd like to use the example of autonomous vehicles, mm. not when, but where, mm. and okay, what the hell does that mean done? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, you'll get this in a vote. We'll get this in a moment, but a, a hydrogen vehicles, I think where that'll be trucks and buses yes. on fixed routes with a set number of stations for refueling. That will be the way to hydrogen getting traction not not in passenger vehicles too much complexity still there so um same same is true for the reason i mentioned autonomous vehicles a lot of people say when are we going to flip the switch and everything will be autonomous uh it'll happen in places limited places first before it expands um yeah well, a couple of interesting points there um with with hydrogen yeah i think uh, you know i've always been a proponent of pure electric vehicles because they eliminate that whole uh, refining, transporting, storing, fueling um, supply chain, which is yes. is a step change in personal transportation, I believe. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas hydrogen, it's still very much part of that, and it's setting up a whole new refueling system. Um, again, um, there's a company in Sydney that uh, is actually looking at um, uh, electrolyzing hydrogen on site for the BYD buses that they're mm. they're running here. So it will be green hydrogen. And I think, as you said, that will be a perfect use case for that. Um, they make it, it's green, uh, it's there, and it's for um, public transport. Um, yes, it, yeah, a perfect solution. And it's not forced. It makes sense. It makes sense. It works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so why are Toyota and Hyundai pursuing this with passenger cars? Then, is it to develop that commercial transportation eventually, or you know, there's some geopolitics going on here too? No, uh, really. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard. Rumor has it on the street <laughs> to be confirmed. This might be wild conjecture, but I think we can back on it. Uh, yes. Yeah, so. It's 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 relaxing a little bit in the last two, three years, but say prior to 2019, China was hell-bent on saying, we are going electrics only. That will be our strategy, and we're not veering from it. And in, con in, in contrast, Japan and Korea said, 
Well, if China intends to lock up the electric vehicle industry, we're going in a different direction. We're going with hydrogen fuel cell. Um, not not so much in my mind to, as because we think it's superior, but because we don't want to be vulnerable and exposed to the China's dominance. So for the longest time, it's been all about fuel cells in those two countries. But if we look today, we see that China is opening up to hydrogen mm. for the first time. In fact, Hyundai's agreed to build a plant in, in Guangdong province, a couple billion dollar investment. Toyota is working with Chinese uh, affiliates on hydrogen fuel cell development. And at the same time, um, Toyota and Honda uh, and the Koreans have turned on the gas, not turned on the gas, that's not the right enough, <laughs> really accelerated efforts to, to build electrics. In fact, we saw just this week the EV6, is it, from yes, Kia? That's right. Yeah. Good looking, good yeah, looking good product. Um, Lexus has its first ever battery electric vehicle launched where in China. So we see a little bit of relaxation, a little bit of thawing in that cold war between Japan and Korea, fuel cell and China electric vehicle that has been the story for the last 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's interesting in the technical debates online, often people get lost in the bigger picture, which is geopolitical and uh, perhaps yeah. hadn't, con hadn't <laughs> considered that uh, rivalry between uh, Japan, Korea and China. Yes, it's it's real. You know, as Australians, you guys know that Asia is at peace t since World War Two, but it's fragile. A lot of animosity there and it could go sideways at a moment's notice and no one would be surprised. Yeah, no one would be surprised. Well, in, in the time we have left, um, I'd like to talk about autonomy briefly because you raised that earlier and um, you've got companies around the world pursuing wildly different uh, versions of autonomy. I suppose Tesla is adamant that uh, a camera only system is the way forward, whereas I believe a lot of Chinese manufacturers are using all the sensor, all the sensors, LiDAR, radar and cameras at their disposal. Mm -hmm. um, what's, what's going to be the edge, do you think, in autonomy for Chinese automakers? Do you, do you think it's that um, geofencing of making it work in a small metropolitan area first, or is it following Tesla's lead? It seems like if I were going to say, say we consider it a two race, two horse race between the US and China for superior superiority in, in, in the autonomous vehicle space, the edge I think goes to China for one reason, and that is that regulatory approvals will be fast and furious. Let's make this happen. And so you see the cities, there's about a dozen cities today that not only welcome, but incentivize testing by the leading AV producers in China. That's Baidu, Pony, WeRide, Inceptio, Too Simple. China's aggressively working out ways to make sure this happens commercially. Uh, contrast that to the United States where state to state, the rules differ, federals have different ideas. So whereas the US leads today, Waymo's still number one when it comes to autonomous vehicle technology and Tesla's also very advanced. The, the, the ace in the hole for China is that the government will make commercialization happen sooner and on a vaster scale than here in the United States. So. That's why, as a betting person, I would probably put my money on China to commercialize uh, 
mm. baby space. And once point. you start commercializing and making money, that money goes back into future investment, uh, R&D, and you're off and running. So a lot of people like to talk China. about, yeah, a lot of people like to talk about that, that. That's how Tesla has got to where it has. But China on a whole is a much bigger scale to what one company in, in the US has been able to do. So it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens. That is how Tesla got, and we forget, that is how Tesla got going. No California regulation, arguably no Tesla, no matter. And, and, and I find Elon to be a, a genius. Just we're so fortunate to be living in the same time as Elon. He's, he's, he's a force. He's a force. So nothing to take away from Elon at all. It's just reality that without that regulation, things just don't get started. Because let's be honest, who, who's sitting you know, in Australia or in America today, I go out and I hang out with my friends here. California's a, a weird case, but if I go to Kansas and I start talking electric vehicles, everyone thinks I'm from, you know, Jupiter. What are you talking right. about? <laughs> no. And I suppose it goes back to what you said uh, at the beginning of the show, really, with with Elon Musk. Obviously, he's he's a genius and has an incredible team around him, but it's right place, right time, you know? And it came to a point where eventually, you know, he was at the right time to seize, uh, I guess, the regulations, the technology, and create this product. He, he did. He put the equation together. I'm also reminded, and we should remind ourselves too of this with regards to China's EV startups. It wasn't that long ago, I believe it was as recently as 2019, that Elon and his team were, were building Model 3s and tents in the parking lot up in Fremont because their robotic manufacturing dream was not working out. And Elon later said he was within weeks of bankruptcy. So it is possible for a company to go from with just on the verge of bankruptcy to, to its valuation today. Two years later, um, yeah, it's just, it, it, that's how fluid things are when we move into new technologies and new companies. Yeah, and, and very quickly on that point before before I let you go, uh, do you see any real advancements in manufacturing coming out of uh, Asia or China specifically at the moment? Uh, I think the most important thing to understand about China today is that it's, uh, it is competitive across all technologies from autonomous vehicles to electrics to, robo uh, to robotics to advanced manufacturing. The one area where they're behind, they know it, the US knows, the rest of the world knows it, is chips. And uh, in the recent meetings in Beijing last week and this week, everyone's talking about semiconductors and how China will become its own master of semiconductors too. So that's the one to watch. Before that happens, the US definitely still has an edge over China, but if China can master chips, <laughs> look out. Yeah. That's sage advice to uh, to the world's automakers. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, Michael, there's... look, uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining me on EV Brief today. Um, look, I really recommend everyone check out your podcast, Winning in Asia, if they're not already listening, that is. Thank you so much for that plug. I really appreciate it. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google, all the rest. And uh, we have some great guests coming up, including I mentioned Peter Horbury, design director at uh, Geely Automotive. Um, also uh, coming up, the vice chairman of XPUM, uh, oh, Brian Cole will be our guest too. So if your interest is in EVs and China and the world, uh, 
please come visit our podcast. Thank you for the plug. Appreciate it's it. A, it's a rapidly shifting uh, industry, but it's fascinating and it's great to have uh, people like you uh, leading the, the discourse on it. So thank you. Terrific. Really, really enjoyed the conversation today. Let's do this again soon. Well, that's it for my conversation with Michael Dunn. I think you'll agree he is simply a wealth of information and experience in the automotive market and especially in China. Now, thanks so much for listening to EV Brief today. Um, head on over to evbrief.com for all the latest news on electric vehicles and renewable energy from Australia and around the world. And if you enjoyed this show, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear from you. My name is Jonathan. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time on EV Brief.